You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. So you may have seen a strange and totally disturbing headline this week, which is that the entire Russian government resigned, uh, including Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev and, and a whole host of other top-level officials. Now, this doesn't mean that Vladimir Putin's regime is over. In fact, quite the opposite. What we're going to talk about this week on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, are the ways in which it's setting up a plan for succession for someone coming after Vladimir Putin or for Putin to take over in a different role. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey, team. Hey. What's going on? We are also here with Andrea Kendall-Taylor, who is a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, uh, a very well-known Russia expert, and particularly an author of a paper on regime succession. So I'm really happy that she's here. Happy to be with you. So I have to tell you guys, I was running a little bit late this morning, and part of that is that I had a dream last night that—and this is real. This is all real— uh, that I shot Vladimir Putin accidentally while visiting Russia, and it didn't go over well with the Russian government, and it was quite disturbing. And so I overslept my alarm and woke up kind of freaked out. I think I may have been over-preparing for this podcast a last bit, night. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like a, like a podcast stress dream. Did the Russians get back at you by making you late somehow in your dream? Uh, no, I was just so stressed out when I woke up because I had difficulty differentiating reality and dreamland that I like – overslept by alarm. I looked at it. I was like, okay, uh, what's going on? And then fell back asleep so, and so woke you, up half an hour later. So you shooting Putin could be a reality for you in your mind. It seems like. <laughs> it, like I was in a shootout. John Krasinski was there. It oh, was really okay. weird. All right. The bottom line is that you didn't actually shoot Putin and no. he still happens to be in power. Correct. Right. Okay. And that's actually the thrust of this episode. Uh, so as our guest, Andrea, I want to start with you. Tell us exactly what these reforms in quote Putin proposed this week might do. I think the most important change was Putin's announcement about pretty radical changes to the Constitution uh, that would shift power away from the presidency towards the parliament. I think quite notably, he also talked about strengthening this kind of relatively sleepy, almost defunct state council, uh, which I think gives some clues about maybe what Putin is planning. So basically, he's announced these constitutional changes. Not only did he shift power away from the president towards the parliament, but there were some other rules about any future president can only serve two terms. So at the end of, you know, the 12 years, that's it. You're taking away those consecutive terms. As we know, Putin served 
two terms, stepped out, and then was back. That will be no more. And then there was another interesting reform, too, that talked about uh, any future president has to have had lived in Russia for 25 consecutive years, not hold any resident permits. So he's basically saying, no, the future president of Russia will not be Alexei Navalny or Khodorkovsky or anyone like that. So in many ways, just like you said, these changes should be interpreted as setting up Putin to continue to rule Russia for the foreseeable future. Okay, and that's kind of what I wanted to know. It's like, if you look at this on paper, it seems like, you know, he's setting up term limits. So it looks like he would then be kicked out. He's expected to, he's supposed to step down in 2024. That's when his term is up. Um, And he's giving more power to the parliament. Can you kind of just explain, because like when I just look at this on paper, it looks like he's giving away power, right? It looks like he's, you know, moving power away from the presidency toward the parliament, telling the parliament that they can pick the new prime minister. Can you just kind of explain how that actually may extend his power? Because I think just looking at it, it's a little confusing. Yeah, so we—I mean, the one thing that we were all expecting that Putin would do something. I think that the timing of this caught everyone by surprise. Right. But we've known for a long time that Putin's, you know, his consecutive term limits expire in 2024, so he was going to have to do something. People expected he would do something that would enable him to continue to rule. And so now he's creating—Russia currently, under this 1993 constitution, has a very strong executive branch. It's a very, very strong presidential system. The previous president, Boris Yeltsin, wasn't really able ever to fully leverage the powers that that constitution gave him. But Putin obviously has been quite effective at fully exploiting the powers that are, are, you know, allowed under the 1993 constitution. So Putin now is basically saying, like, there will never be another president as strong as I am. (laughs) Uh, And so he, you know, he's come along. He has taken Russia out of that very turbulent transition away after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, And he basically wants to create a system that is uh, less, allows for less concentration of power. uh, So no one can really quite benefit the way that he did. Um, He is then changing and shifting power towards the parliament. And I think then the expectation would be that President Putin would shift. He would move over and serve either as prime minister or he would take over as head of this state council. And I think the thing that's interesting is that there is some precedent for this. And so you, if you look at Turkey, for example, I was, I have kind of thought about this as like an Erdogan, but in reverse. Um, Erdogan had served as prime minister for something like 11 years uh, and then through changed the constitution to make for a strong presidential system stepped down as prime minister, was elected to president, and now he's able to continue to rule there. So that's one option. He's moved powers—President Putin now has moved these powers towards the parliament, so he could step in as prime minister. Or I think the most likely option in my mind seems that he will step into this role as head of uh, the state council— Um, and be able to rule from there. And again, there is another precedent when you look to Kazakhstan. And so that's something that we saw just as recently as 2018, and I think was probably something that Putin was watching very closely. And so there, Nazarbayev was president for almost 30 years, uh, changed his constitution to empower this new, you know, he stepped in as head of the Security Council, empowered that, gave it more powers, stepped in there and allowed his successor to rule. So I think he was watching that quite closely. He's basically setting up a new system, shifting power to an area where he would be able to step in and continue to, you know, control and influence domestic and foreign policy, I don't know, until the end. Now, like the obvious question, or at least that I have thinking about this, is— why doesn't Putin just 
change the Constitution to get rid of term limits and stay in formal power. And my understanding is that there are real concerns about popular backlash in that world, right? He's uh, at a relatively low ebb popularity-wise. Americans are used to thinking of Putin as being this popular strongman, but in actuality, the economy is not doing very well. So it, it seems like just cementing his time as a full-on authoritarian would risk some kind of more direct backlash from the Russian population. Is that wrong? No, I think that's exactly right. Even, you know, stepping back before yesterday, I mean, there were he basically had a couple of options at his disposal that would allow him to stay on. One, option one would be he could pick a successor, handpick someone, step down, fade into the, to the background, and allow the successor to run in elections and continue on. Um, that's a model we've seen in some authoritarian regimes. It hasn't worked out that well. There's some really cool political science research that shows when an incumbent authoritarian regime doesn't actually stand in elections, that the opposition then has a much higher chance of winning. So we saw that, for example, in Kenya, uh, when Moy stepped down, his chosen su successor, Kabaki, lost elections. Uh, another highly personalized authoritarian regime in Ghana, Jerry Rawlings, did the same thing. His handpicked successor ran, stepped and ran in elections and lost there. So that is something that, that looks like that's probably not in the cards for Putin. The, the, the other option, that as, is, as you rightly said, is that he could have just abolished term limits. And that's what we saw in China with Xi Jinping. He did that very early in his term to set up this situation where he could be ruler from, for life. And it is interesting. That, honestly, is what I expected would happen. I thought that Putin would find a way uh, to change term limits and stay on, um, in part because there's also kind of a global trend towards that happening. We're seeing leaders across Africa and also all across the globe. There's been an increasing incidence of leaders who, using referendum or other kind of, you know, legalistic mechanisms, demonstrating that it's the will of the popular vote uh, to legitimize the action, that they are extending term limits. So in all honesty, that's what I thought would happen. But this is another, what we're seeing now, this shifting powers to a different, it's a constitutional change of another kind that seems, I think, a little bit less um, outrageous, a little less egregious, probably from a popular perspective. It is interesting that Putin then will take this to a referendum we've heard now by May 1st, because he is he he does want to try to legitimize these actions. But I think that the term limit extensions uh, probably would have been seen by Russians as unacceptable. He did face when he stepped back into office in 2012, those huge street protests. And so I think that was probably top of mind for him too. So the timing of this actually is what's fascinating to me because basically anyone who's been thinking about this, including you, is that this came early, right? And so I think one of the reasons, and I should say before I, I continue, is that I talked to a, a friend of, I believe ours, Reed Standish, who's a, a journalist out in Moscow. So anything I say that sounds smart is probably likely because of him. Um, but the, the doing this early was one to to stop a popular backlash, to to make sure that there weren't those big protests that we've seen so far. But another one is that he's trying to set the table for the important Duma elections in 2021. The Duma lower, being the parliament, the, the, the lower house of parliament, and where that's where they're going to need to ratify a lot of these changes. And so having a year plus ish to work on this to signal that this is what Putin wants, this is the kind of system he wants. It gives him time to lean on a lot of these lawmakers, which shouldn't be that hard, I guess, um, <laughs> but also to just kind of set the table for what's happening. Uh, and I'm also wondering, because there have been some reports of infighting within the government, that there have been some elites who have been trying to, you know, who've been thinking about, well, what does life after Putin 
look like. And they've been sort of jockeying and fighting for position and maybe trying to get ahead. And I wonder if this is Putin kind of like slapping his kids, you know, and just being like, stop it. I'm going to be here for a while. And you guys need to stop infighting and just kind of get along with the package. It's, it's, it, I mean, I, Putin is a smart tactician. This seems like a really good sort of just political move and also good public relations move. Uh, and I think he's learned the lessons of sort of the past couple of years. Yeah, I think it's incredibly smart. It's, it seems like it's relatively well played. And now it seems obvious, you know, obviously in hindsight that this was something that is planned in part because of the, the way that it latches up with the Duma elections, like you mentioned. But I, there is something to be said. So the timing came as a total surprise. The, the, what happened, the substance of what happens isn't necessarily surprising, but the timing, I think, caught almost everybody by surprise. And you are right to note that, you know, this is taking place aimed at the context of a lot of elite infighting. I mean, I think you can kind of think back to what it was like uh, in around 2008 when no one knew what Putin was going to do then. The level of infighting is really intense. And there's been a lot of, as you said, elites jockeying for position, using laws, going after each other, trying to eliminate opposition. So the elite infighting has been intense. And also the public dissatisfaction. When you look at Putin's public approval ratings, they're down back towards the 60s, down from, you know, upper 80s after the illegal— Wait, sorry, the 60s are—that's low That's low, low because yeah. after the illegal annexation of Crimea, his public approval raising was in the high 80s. Wow. And so in this—you know, he's down around 63 percent at the moment. And so having kind of this elite, intense infighting, high levels of public dissatisfaction, I think—and and when you look forward, I don't think that any of that was going to—is likely to get any better. So certainly from an— economic perspective, Russia's economy isn't expected to grow more than 1% to 2% of GDP. So I think if you're Putin, you're looking forward. None of the, the elites are jockeying because there's all of this uncertainty looming about what his future is going to be. The economy isn't gate, you know, set to, to improve by any means. And so he does it now, I think, to avoid having the pressure build up to 2024. If you're an authoritarian leader, particularly a highly personalized one like uh, Putin, Leadership transitions and succession are really scary times, uh, and they have to be managed carefully. And so to do it now, I think, is in large part because of the context, the discontent from the elite, from the public. And it is interesting, like you said, then it gives uh, Russia time, Putin time, ahead of the 2021 Duma elections, because those, those I think, now will be a really our key. Uh, right now, the United Russia— the party that, you know, supports Putin. Putin isn't the head of the party, which I think is really interesting. But and United, he's kind of brushed them off for a little bit. Yeah, because their popularity is suffering as well. But, it, you know, right now they they hold a two-thirds majority in, in the Duma, which allows them to do all sorts of things. And so I think having that majority continue in 2021 is going to be critical for allowing Putin's plans to unfold smoothly. And you already saw, even just even before Putin's uh, State of the Nation address, there were already some inklings of, you know, I was reading some news reports about how the uh, Kremlin is creating a lot of new opposition parties with celebrity figures and other things. I think looking ahead to the 2021 election, because then it helps divide votes for, for the opposition across many parties so that no one opposition party can gain enough traction. So it's already in their mind. And I just want to quickly highlight this point because sometimes I, I always like to highlight it because I, I always feel like we forget that dictators have politics too. Right. And and, uh, and Putin actually really has them. There's a book I love called All the Kremlin's Men by Mikhail Zygar. And it's a, a brilliant book because what it shows is that there are, you know, Putin is, of course, the power player in Russia and the system is his and he's in control. 
But there really are a lot of elites and people around him that have helped create who he is and the image of who he is and how this and how the state runs. And he's got to control them. He's got to um, work with them, and he's got to he's got to deal with this kind of stuff. And so the you know yes, Putin is doing this early. Obviously, he it seems like he's going to be in control, but he has to actually think through every single move. Because of, as you mentioned, just how vulnerable the state will be without him, but also because of all these other powerful people he has to account for and both work with and keep at bay. It's Putin is cannot do anything he really wants. I mean, he he can to a certain extent, but he really has to be careful. And and so that's why I mean, I impressed. I always feel bad sort of handing it to him, but I am kind of impressed with this <laughs> you move. Do not, <laughs> yeah, you do in not. In fact, no. you got to hand no, it to him. But I am, I mean, I am kind of impressed because we have been con- wondering for a long time, what was it going to look like? What move was he going to pick? I like that we all recited that drill tweet. Yeah, we really did. Yeah. By the way. Yeah, but it journalists does, spend way too much time yeah. on Twitter, ladies and gentlemen. But it does, it just really does seem like he picked the right move. Of course, time will tell. So I wanted to ask just quickly, there was this weird, crazy kind of side story that I read that wasn't super well explained in some of the articles I read. And if you go on to Vox.com, uh, our colleague Jen Kirby, frequent worldly guest, has a great piece explaining some of this. But I just wanted to kind of talk about it. There was another option that people thought that Putin might take. I just kind of want to tease this out really quickly before we go on, which was the deal with Belarus and that he might essentially create a new country and just be president of that instead. Can you kind of talk through like what, like he was just going to like make a union with Belarus and just, I'll just go run that instead. Yeah, there was a lot of speculation, and I think a lot of kind of Russia watchers, FSU watchers, were watching that, that kind of— Soviet in, Union. Yeah, former, F- Soviet, former Union. Soviet Union. <laughs> we're kind of watching that in peripheral view. Some people started to get a little nervous because the rhetoric around that started really heating up in the last six months or so. And so it, it is exactly what you said, that all of a sudden that there would be this new union state, that Russia and Belarus would combine into one. And then that, of course, would necessitate a new constitution, right. some sort of new legal mechanism, and then Putin can— and then, you know, use that as a way to extend term limits. So that was definitely one of the options that was floating around. And now, I mean, obviously, that's something that Lukashenko is a dictator, too. And he (laughs) has interests and wants to, you know, he has a son to whom he could hand power one day. And so, you know, he has his own interests, too. And he has been playing hardball, so to speak, and pushing back at every, you know, with every lever, which are limited, but with every lever that he has available to try to, to fend that off. And I think it looked like that wasn't going to be a feasible option for the Kremlin and, and, and they've moved on. Got it. I mean, they could just take it, right? Well, like, if, they, of, if they want to. That's kind of what I was thinking. You know, it kind of leads to my next kind of question, which is there's been a lot of talk uh, in the past, you know, decade, I guess, or so uh, of you know, Putin wanting to reconstitute the former Soviet Union, right? That he wants to kind of return to this, I don't really want to use the word glory. I don't know if I would call the Soviet Union a glorious period, but I'm American, so that's probably why. Um, But, you know, the idea that he would essentially create this, like, union with with Belarus, I think in a lot of people's minds was a little like, wait, what is, wait, what? Another literal, like, Soviet Union? And so my question is, You know, what does this mean in terms of going forward? If Putin is making these moves, if he's going to be in power for the foreseeable future, I guess in the broader sense, not just for Russia, but in terms of geopolitics, you know, we saw the the seizure of Crimea and the war in Ukraine, Donbass. Are we likely to see more of that, more expansion? Um, Obviously, I know that you can't predict what Putin's going to do, but 
or, you know, or my other thought is like, well, was that mostly to shore up his power? And he's like done now. And now he feels like he's, you know, in a good position. I just kind of wonder your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm always cautious about drawing a straight line between Putin's domestic popularity and his foreign actions abroad. There's okay. lots of people who will make that argument that then like what he did in Crimea was so hugely popular that maybe he learned the lesson that those types of um, adventurous foreign policies are a way to rally public support. Um, but I think in many ways, Ukraine was unique. Um, okay. We didn't see any similar bounce in his public approval when he intervened in Syria, for example. Right. So, but I th- and I would also kind of caution against this notion that Putin is, you know, expansionist and looking to reconstitute the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, I think instead what we see from, I mean, he is incredibly opportunistic. Uh, he, because he is such a highly personalized dictator, there's very few constraints on his power. Although, to your point earlier, no man rules alone and he has constituents that he has to keep happy. But relative to other leaders, you know, he has very few constraints on his power and that gives him the latitude to be able to act opportunistically as he sees opportunities arise. That said, I think when we've seen Putin willing to use military force are in cases where he is looking to stem in his mind, what he views as geopolitical loss. When Putin views that he is losing, that something that he believes is his, that's when he's willing to take his most risky assertive foreign policy. So obviously- Syria or Ukraine. Exactly. I mean, Ukraine is the poster child of that. I mean, he sees Ukraine as, you know, that is firmly within Russia's sphere of influence. It is of extreme importance geopolitically. It's the buffer state on his border. To lose Ukraine to the West uh, would have been Uh, you know, intolerable. And so when it looked like that was up for grabs, that's when he's willing to to intervene. Similar with Syria. He had a lot lot of longstanding interests there. He was really interested in pushing back against what he saw as U.S. unilateralism. He doesn't, he wasn't willing to tolerate any more Western-led regime change. And so he wanted to, uh, uh, you know, insert Russia to shore up Bashar al-Assad. So I think it's it, it's not that he is just out looking to expand Russian borders. He wants to stem geopolitical loss. The case of Belarus is interesting, though, because you could imagine a situation where you had mass demonstrations, protests in Belarus, and if it looked like an opposition was going to come to the helm, I would put Belarus at the top of my list of most at risk for where you could see Russian intervention if it looks like Belarus is— is, you know, turning away from Russia's sphere of influence. So we are going to take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about the changes to the Russian system in context of other authoritarian regimes and sort of the the broader move towards authoritarianism globally and the stability of those states. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. The team is here talking about Russia's government seeming like it's falling apart, but actually strengthening itself uh, with 
Andrea Long-Taylor, who is an expert at the Center for New American Security and also the host of their wonderfully named Brussels Sprouts podcast. Ah, thanks for the plug. Yeah, I forgot to do that earlier. <laughs> I'm sorry about that because I really do appreciate the name and also the vegetable in question. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, Underrated, really, I make it for all sure. The time. Yeah. No, I think now it's properly rated, but like when we were kids, everyone boiled them. And really, you got to roast them. Worldly trivia, ladies and gentlemen. Worldly <laughs> trivia. Yes, Zach loves cooking Brussels sprouts. That is true. You complimented my Brussels sprouts the other day. They smelled good. They were, like you did a good job roasting thank them. Thank you. I did, I did pretty great. I'm not yeah, I was, I was proud of you. Alex. Thank you very much. You. One, one thing, Andrea, that you said that I thought was really important is, is that the Putin regime is highly personalized. Like you said that just at the end. And what, what that means, uh, listeners, for those of you who don't spend all your time reading political science like I do, uh, is that it's referring to a specific kind of authoritarian regime. There are lots of different ones, right? And a personalist authoritarian regime is one that builds up uh, authority, structures, power around one individual person rather than a cabal of elites, which is like how the Chinese government probably more accurately used to run, doesn't really anymore, but it used to be more structured around a sort of loose uh, party consensus and, and group building among Chinese elites rather than just Xi Jinping calling the shots. Now Russia is, is Putin calling the shots, and that's not true not just domestically, though there are constraints in the way Alex was talking about, but uh, also popularly, right? It's uh, it's not just the government, it's that people and the legitimacy of the regime itself is very tied up in Putin's self-image and his um, projection of strength, power, and competence. So what confuses me about this, this government reconstitution is how the regime's legitimacy will be impacted in a world where Putin is no longer the figurehead, key leader, boss man in, obvi like, in obvious and clear terms. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important questions to be asking. Again, like kind of going back to that idea, in a personalist dictatorship, these leadership transitions are such vulnerable moments for a regime. So in China, you know, uh, uh, before Xi Jinping came along and abolished term limits, like you had multiple leaders who could come and go because there was a party and there was an institutionalized mechanism for changing leadership. Those single party regimes last for an incredibly long time. You know, the, Ch the Chinese Communist Party has now been there for 70 years. Think about the pre in Mexico, almost 70 years. Lots of leaders come and go. The party provides that institution. That's absent in Russia. And I think then the, 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 the thing for an, a highly personalized leader is to try to smooth and manage that in a way that can continue the regime after they leave power. So I think this is an attempt by Putin to try to solve that dilemma. He's kind of stepping to the side, maybe, although, I mean, I think it, it, that's the question that I think we'll be having to watch and that we don't yet know how this will go. In my mind, I would imagine that Putin will still be pulling all of the strings of domestic and foreign policy while trying to allow others to kind of carry on the legacy of the Putin regime after he leaves. So I don't think we're going to see any sort of transition. I think the fact that Putin is staying in the picture uh, to the extent that we expect that he will is, in effect, trying to legitimize and uh, help Russian citizens imagine a world post-Putin. So he's trying to smooth that transition so it's not so abrupt. He's trying to give legitimacy to some of the people and the new structures that he builds so that this regime can, can live on beyond him. And I think it's clearly in the interests of all the elites around him for that to happen because they are, are all invested. They all benefit hugely from the perks of this particular regime. And so they are all going to cling on to this. They have a vested interest in making sure that this continues uh, because they want to continue to benefit from the system. I also think it's probably why we saw Putin announce um, the 
such an unknown figure for yeah, the role that's of what prime I minister. To know. Yeah, this guy who was the head of the federal tax service. Nobody had heard of this guy, Mikhail Mishushtin. Uh, nobody has heard of him. He was really plucked from relative obscurity and has now kind of launched into the role of prime minister for now. And I think in many, I mean, that's when you look at these transitions play out in other authoritarian regimes, that's often how they tend to go. These leaders are looking for compromise figures who they sometimes mistakenly uh, think they can control. And all the other elites also likely can see in him what they want to see in him and think that they'll continue to be able to, you know, control and, and continue to benefit. So I think having this kind of unknown candidate uh, is, again, kind of the way that we would expect this to happen. Um, like, it's not quite as wild as, like, say, appointing your dentist, like in Turkmenistan, uh, for example, you know. That did actually happen. Literally that did happened. actually happen. Uh, you know, when the leader died, it's like, oh, just my dentist can run the country because sure, why not? That's a very highly centralized uh, system that was a very, you know, personalized system. My dentist probably could run the country. Yeah, exactly. yeah. You, you know, have a lot more faith in your dentist than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm kind of still wondering, you know, just to follow on that point, this state council body, like what is that? If he, if Putin decides to take the reins of that, it's it's also a pretty like not powerful body, kind of obscure body, right? Like I have never really heard of this as something that, you know, regular Russia people talk about ever. And all of a sudden it's this thing that like, oh, he might run that and run the country from there. Like what is that and how how does that body function or do we even know how it would function? Yeah, so the, so the that that state council was created in 2000 by Putin at a time when he was pulling power away from some of the regional governors okay. as kind of a I don't know I think maybe like a consolation prize for some of these regional governors who were losing power then they were told that they would be able to serve in this advisory role to Putin. Got it. It's totally defunct. It doesn't have any power. It's really kind of sat there lamely for several years. But now we see with his announcement uh, in the State of the Nation address that he is going to kind of reinvest power into that body. And again, I think it's, I don't know, I think this idea for Putin of serving as a senior statesman, as this like father of the nation kind of figure, um, he, you know, he he can then embed or I imbue this new this body uh, with power and rule from there in that kind of father of the nation address. I, I think, you know, in my mind, it's unlikely that he would step back into the prime ministership because you do hear from lots of folks that, you know, this idea that Putin is tired of ruling, that he doesn't want to be responsible for the day-to-day -day activities of running a government, uh, that there would be risks associated with that because it's the prime minister that's often blamed for economic um, difficulties and other things. So a lot of risks, a lot of day-to-day -day management that would have to come from the prime ministership that Putin probably doesn't want to do. But he could kind of create this thing, I mean, it would be his to create, and he could kind of create that aura, I think, of father of the nation, and then in that way, you know, legitimize this transition. Yeah, I heard from some experts that Putin would rather actually kind of be more hands-off the economy going forward and wants to focus more on foreign policy because he's still upset with the decision by uh, Medvedev from 2011 to abstain from that UN Security Council vote allowing, you know, the U.S. and others to go into Libya and, and, and unleashing the chaos that, that, that is there. Uh, and since then, he obviously, you know, we know about Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And so for, I don't know if you if you buy this argument that taking on kind of maybe a non-prime minister role, elevating himself as almost like Russia's chairman of the board, so to speak, would allow him to set a strategic direction for Russia in terms of its global affairs. And he can kind of 
not take blame for the economic malaise that seems to be um, infecting Russia at this point, although he is given credit for raising the standard of living uh, in Moscow and elsewhere in the country throughout his tenure. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that that he probably would like to play that more kind of strategic advisor kind of role. I don't maybe he's taking another pl- page out of the playbook of Xi Jinping, you know, who's put his what, what's that called? The, his thought into uh, the she thought Xi Jinping thought into the Constitution, and that you you know have this kind of larger than life kind of like, exactly father of the nation kind of role. I think I don't know. In my mind, if I was betting at this moment, that's what I would guess. And that's yeah, that's what I kind of wonder in the sort of broad regime type questions about this. Is Putin trying to affect a long term transition from a personalist regime? to a party institutionalized one using this kind of security mechanism or using this council, again, previously obscure, as a mechanism for doing so, right, to, to make it not just about himself. Like, I, I I genuinely am confused as to how he sees, like, does he want to be the, the mythological figure going forward, not doing the stuff, the day-to-day stuff that Alex is talking about, and a party actually runs the government with no more Putins anymore, no more strongmen, just, well, Strong men in plural, but not a strong man yeah. individual. Yeah. So again, it, the leadership transition is especially precarious for these highly personalized dictatorships. And so when you look at how all leaders exit office, and we can talk about this separately, but there's a death in office scenario right. that tends to be highly actually stabilizing and it tends to usher in a lot of continuity when a leader dies in office. But when a leader exits office, and this is kind of based on looking at all leadership transitions in regimes that look most like Russia, when a highly personalized longtime leader like Putin exits exits office by any means other than death in office, the regime falls with it 74% of the time. So the regime tends to come down with the leader because like what you said, it's all about the leader. You know, that the, the leader and the and the regime are so intertwined that when that leader goes, the regime tends to collapse with it. And so I'd, my guess is that, yes, he, he could be trying to organize, you know, move towards a more institutionalized form of authoritarianism that would help give continuity to this regime. That's going to be a hard track to blaze. <laughs> I'm mixing my analogies in my head. We but blaze tracks. Yeah, yeah we could blaze trails, tracks. It's yeah, <laughs> um, a lot of blazing this morning. Yeah. yeah. But the. <laughs> was that some sort of drug reference? <laughs> yes, it was a drug joke. Yes. This it is was. a former intelligence <laughs> official. She has done no drugs. I can't hear you. <laughs> you damn hippie, get a job. <laughs> damn it, Zach. Uh, but the, the tricky thing is then, like, how does that happen? Because um, Putin is not the head of United Russia. So in these other institutionalized regimes, like the Chinese Communist Party, like the PRI in Mexico, the the leader is the he- is the head of the party, and it's the party that provides that institutional continuity. Right now, United Russia, as we were saying before, is really unpopular. So wh- you know, the, wh- I don't. He, it doesn't feel like he has a lot of options at his disposal currently. But maybe that's why he is looking to parliamentary elections in 2020, 2021, uh, That he, I, but I guess, long story short, is I do think he's probably trying to figure out a way how to overcome this dilemma of highly personalized leaders exiting office. And the answer to that has to be a more institutionalized form of authoritarianism than there is now. What I find interesting about that uh, is that it seems like the long-term global direction, it, what it seems like in Toto, the, the global movement is the other way, right? You're seeing authoritarian regimes become more personalized globally across the world. What accounts for the, the difference between Russia and, you know, the, the general overall global trend. 
Yeah, you're right that there's a trend. We did a piece on that in, on foreign affairs with my co-authors, Erica Franz and Joe Wright. We've done a lot of work on this personalism. and We can link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, we, sh- we find that, you know, personalist dictatorships as a proportion of all authoritarian regimes are increasing, and they're now the most prevalent form of authoritarianism. Something like 40% of all authoritarian regimes are now highly personalized authoritarian regimes. You noted that even in some other forms of autocracies like China, there is a move towards greater personalism, even within these other kinds of systems. So it is, I mean, you're exactly right. What you're seeing is Putin is basically bucking the trend in this case. But I think it's it's about the preservation of the regime. And so he, I think, has has you know, rightfully watched from the successes, the failures of his peers and predecessors. And he is trying to solve this dilemma of personalist dictatorship and trying to chart a path so that this regime can live beyond Putin. Just a, since we mentioned a couple of times that, you know, these transitions are vulnerable and, and potentially dangerous, what happens when they fail? Uh, what, what is the outcome with, you know, if Putin is right now, he seems like he'll be successful. What if he's not successful or what, what do we, what have we seen from examples of other regimes like this where they tried a kind of transition package and it, and it didn't work out? Yeah, it's really interesting question. And again, kind of, I have looked at some of the data. And so when you have, again, highly personalized authoritarian regimes that have been in power 15 years and longer, and that leader exits in 42% of the cases, the regime persists. And that means basically, I think because it, in so many of these cases, leaders stay on until the very end. They die in office. It's, in fact, the most common outcome. About 40% of all regimes that look like Russia, the leader goes on to die in office. And so that could very well be the case with Putin. He moves over to the state council and stays there until he dies a natural death in office. And then the regime, I guess, in 42% of cases would persist beyond him. Um, In 26% of cases, you get a new form of authoritarianism. So you want a transition from one autocracy to another. Uh, And only about 26% of cases do you see any sort of democratization. So I think the story is generally speaking, and we know that personalist dictatorships are the least likely to democratize upon their collapse. So, you know, and, and, and it makes sense, right? Because there's no real institutional structure in place. You know, Putin has done his best to hollow out the institutions, sideline competent individuals to some degree. And so the, the ground really is not ripe for democracy to take root. What's interesting to me is Putin's not very old, comparatively speaking. I mean, 67, he's, he's right? 67. Yeah. yeah, I just Googled it. Um, <laughs> so uh, thanks, Wikipedia. I mean, if you look at, you know, if we're talking about him potentially dying in office, like, I, I don't know what life expectancy is in Russia, especially if you are— It's going up slightly. Yeah, and especially if you're Putin, he probably has access to nicer things and good medical care. Probably better health care than all of us do. And he's, Botox. Yeah, exactly. And, he, you know, he wrestles bears and rides horses he's, shirtless. He's so, healthy. Beats right. at hockey. That's definitely right. a real thing that but he I mean, is better at hockey than professional players. Sorry, Jen, go on. Right. I mean, you know, maybe they threw the game. But, uh, you know, if you look at just, for example, in the U.S., the, the slate of Democratic 2020 presidential candidates are— uh, I, I would say, on average, a little bit older. You know, we have candidates in their 70s. Um, President Trump is older than that. So I guess I'm just wondering, you know, it seems to me, looking at Putin, you know, we've always kind of thought of him as this, you know, personal, like, you know, personalized dictatorship. And it was his and his power. But if he's trying to set this kind of broader, longer-term strategic path for Russia and for the regime to persist, it seems like I don't know. That that gives me a different view of Putin than I think I thought I had before. I thought he was more like a selfish kind of political thing. But it seems like he—I don't know. I don't want to say like he's like a patriot and he like cares about Russia. But it kind of seems like maybe he 
you know, because, I mean, once you die, like, who cares what happens to your regime, right? If 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 you're a selfish leader. So I guess, I, I don't know really what my question is, but just— I got what you're saying. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you could just speak to that. Yeah, I think—I uh, I mean, I think for Putin, he cares a great deal about his legacy. I mean, I, like, yeah. we're talking about him stepping into this father of the nation role. Right. I mean, he's been in power now from— in Russia for 20 years. He's taken Russia through the tumultuous period of the transition. Uh, He's seen living standards, particularly in his first two terms, increase dramatically. Russians are quite grateful to see, you know, to Putin, regardless of the fact that it was driven by high oil prices in the early 2000s. But Russians up until now have seen their life, uh, quality of life improve. And so I think he is in many ways kind of thinking about the legacy and wanting to, you know, ensure that he maintains that reputation of this father of the nation. And and that and so in that sense, he is looking kind of, you know, a, 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 to his own future. Uh, all right. And uh, that is our show today. I want to really thank Andrea for coming on um, and suffering through me mispronouncing your name a few times. <laughs> um, I know that happens to me a lot with my last name. Uh, yeah, so I have lots Zeke of Beecham, things. right? Yeah. <laughs> Zeke Beecham, yes, exactly. Zach Brohan, you- thank you very much. <laughs> I've gotten Camp before, which is like a real telemarketer tell. Not that there are telemarketers anymore. But um, look, you have a new uh, textbook coming out too? I do, we yeah. Plug one more thing. What's that about? So I uh, this was has been a long labor of love. Um, I've worked on this textbook for over two and a half years with co-authors Erica Franz and Natasha Lindstadt. And it's a book on democracy and authoritarian regimes. Uh, and it basically, I mean, I, if, if folks have been interested in some of the dynamics we're talking about that characterize authoritarian regimes, this is a great place to go just to read more on that. We talk a lot about the political dynamics that shape autocracies. Why are they, why are some regimes long-lasting? Others are quite short-lived. What, you know, what causes instability? How do regimes transition? We also talk about a lot of the problems in democracies, you know, the slow authoritarianization or the slow degradation of democracy. So basically trying to look at both democracies and authoritarian regimes and characterizing the political dynamics that are shaping the company competition between them. Oh, I'm actually working on a big project on democracies, authoritarianizing. Check it out. Authoritarianizing. So I think you and I may have to have a conversation after the show. Anyway, I want to thank Andrea for coming on the show. Uh, I want to thank our engineer, Malachi Brodus, our producer, Jackson Bierfeldt. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, review Worldly, wherever y'all get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. Bye. Спасибо. Let's thank you in Russian, right? Okay, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I worked on that. (laughs) What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.